Zechariah chapter 5 tonight. So, in the first four chapters of Zechariah, God has sent this prophet to the people of Israel to encourage them and strengthen them for the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and especially the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And now we come to sort of a change in tone from the prophet Zechariah and from God. And we might think as we read and study Zechariah chapter 5, Lord, it almost seems like you're kicking these people now while, while they're down. Why are you talking about their sin? Well, here's the reason. And this is something that you and I need to be reminded of too. And that is the reason now God, after sending some comforting words at first, has to confront the people of God with their sin is because there is nothing that will sap our strength for God and the work that God wants us to do. There is nothing that will weaken us more than allowing sin to reign in our lives. And so God has got to deal with that so that His people know that He has come to conquer their evil deeds, to throw their sins into the depth of the sea, to separate them, release them, and deliver them from their sin. To look to Him, as we just sung about, for complete deliverance and the power to overcome these things in our lives that continue to put a drag on our spiritual well-being, and especially when we're trying to do the work of the Lord. So tonight in chapter 5, we have three points. We see here through the prophet Zechariah that sin is cursed, sin is covered, and then sin is carried away. The first thing I want us to notice, though, is this. In verse 1, then I turned to look, Zechariah says, and there was a flying scroll, this huge banner. And someone asked me, what do you see? And I replied, well, I see a flying scroll 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. This message cannot be avoided. It is clear for all to see. It is big enough, if you will, that no one can claim ignorance of the message. And this flying scroll is basically uh, a picture of the Word of God coming across the land of Israel and the people of God. They're, they're not going to be able to say, God, I didn't know. God sent them His Word, and now He's even sent them the prophet to clarify his word. But notice now what Zechariah goes on to say. The speaker went on to say to Zechariah, this is a curse traveling across the whole earth. And, for example, according to this curse, whoever steals will be removed from the community. Or on the other hand, according to the curse, whoever swears falsely will suffer the same fate. God is saying, I need to purge sin from my people. I need to prune my people so that they can bear even more fruit. And the way he does that is by reminding them, in a sense, of the consequences of breaking the covenant that they entered into. As we talked about in the, 
in the series on Noah, there are some covenants that are unilateral where God just made them and said, this is what I'm going to promise you regardless of how you behave or whatever you do. And then there's other covenants that are bilateral that God says, if you do this, then I will do this. And that is what this is referring to. The covenant where God said, if you do this, I will bless you. But if you do this, if you transgress, if you sin, then I will not bless you. I will actually send consequences and judgment and cursing into your life. And again, the word curse simply speaks about the transgression of a covenant that one entered into with the Lord. It is a judgment incurred for the transgression of that covenant. And you'll notice here the two representative sort of things is there, there's a, a transgression that represents our duty to one another, to, to our fellow uh, man, about stealing And then there's one that represents our duty to God about basically uh, taking his name or swearing falsely in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't have time to go into all this tonight, but God is confronting them with what I call the sins of the marketplace. Sins of of finance, if you will. You see, in in this day, uh, there were people that were using false weights and measures in the marketplace, and basically stealing from one another, cheating and exploiting one another. In fact, that even went into the New Testament age. That's one of the reasons why Jesus turned the temple uh, upside down and turned the tables over in the temple when he went in. It wasn't because necessarily they were uh, selling the sacrificial things that the people needed to have to offer sacrifices. It was they were driving the price up to such a level that they were just exploiting the situation and exploiting the people. And Jesus was very upset by that and said, you know, you shall not make my father's house, which is a house of prayer, a den of thieves. Well, this started all the way back even in the Old Testament time. And so you had that. And then you had people who were cheating one another by, in a sense, invoking the Lord's name as if, well, that, that's it. If I, if I swear by the Lord's name or invoke his name, then that makes everything all right, even though I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing type of thing. And so Zechariah is saying, look, folks, we entered into a covenant with God. And if we continue to behave this way, just as we did when we ended up in exile, it's going to cost us something. And right now, God is asking his people to rise up to throw away their idolatry, if you will, to worship the Lord, to have a heart of devotion to Him, and to stop cheating one another and and overlooking these sins that are sapping the strength and spiritual well-being of His people to where they're not able to put all of their energy and effort into the rebuilding of their lives and their homes and their city and especially the temple of the Lord. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 8, I will send it out. Speaking about the word of the Lord, says the Lord who rules over all. And it will enter the house of the thief and of the person who swears falsely in my name. And it will land in the middle of his house and destroy both timber and stones. What God is saying is that this curse is going to consume the very things that they were pursuing, the same things that they were coming to live for, you see. They were pursuing materialism and material prosperity at the expense 
of their spiritual well-being. And God is saying to his people, that's going to cost you. That's very costly indeed. When we put material things and when we put physical things above our spiritual well-being. And that's what was happening in the nation of Israel. And Zechariah was being sent to confront and to challenge the people with this. But that wasn't the end of the message. Yes, God will always come to us and convict and confront us about the things that are not lining up with Him. Why? Because again, He sees that, that sin weakens us. It, it puts us in a really bad place where we can't be as energetic and enthusiastic and passionate and all of that about the things that God calls us to do. So God wants to deliver us from these things so we can put our whole heart, if you will, and our whole being into our relationship with God and into our service and ministry and the work of the Lord. Always abounding, if you will, in the work of the Lord, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So Zechariah goes on to give them now some encouraging words. And that is that sin is going to be covered by the Lord. After this, verse 5, the angelic messenger who had been speaking to me went out and said, Look, see what is leaving. And I asked, What is it? And he replied, It's a basket for measuring grain. This was, again, this ephah. It was the largest dry measurement that the Jews had. And again, it, it symbolizes sort of trading in the marketplace. And it's moving away from here. Moreover, he said, this is their eye throughout all the earth. Remember back in chapter 4, in verse 10, we were, we were introduced to the fact that these are the eyes of the Lord which constantly run or range across the whole earth. Well, that's being alluded to here. God is seeing what is going on. But then I love this, verse 7. Then a round lead cover was raised up, revealing a woman sitting inside the basket. And he then said, this woman represents wickedness. Now, a couple things. First of all, for you ladies, why did they have to symbolize wickedness with a woman? Well, the word wickedness is feminine in form. In fact, to balance it out, we're going to be introduced to two beautiful divine servants, two ladies, in verse 9 that actually carries the sin away. So, there's that. (laughs) But the woman inside the basket personifies the sin of God's people. And yet I want you to see something. It is being covered by a lead cover. This is unusual. Usually the cover would be a stone cover. And so this is illustrating for us that in some way, this is guaranteeing that this wickedness that is sitting inside the basket is in some way being restrained. In fact, we see this even as we move on in the text. After we are told that this woman inside the basket represents the wickedness of God's people, then it says she is being pushed down into the basket and placed there, and and then the cover is slammed on top. And, And the language here is very physical. It is very forceful. It is showing us God's merciful restraint 
in, in, in pushing down the sin instead of letting the sin have free reign and free rule in the lives of God's people. And that's what I mean when I say sin is covered. I'm not so much talking about it in the sense that we sometimes talk about the fact that the the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin and so we can be forgiven. Here I'm using it as an illustration of how God restrains sin from from its full-blown capacity in our lives. And that's something that you and I sometimes we don't consider. That God doesn't allow... Satan or the demonic world, even if we're involved in spiritual warfare, to come at us full force. Or that the the sins that we struggle with somehow are, are coming at us full bore. That God, with His people, is always there to fight with us and to fight for us to push sin down in our lives and not allow it to just take over, if you will. I hope that will be encouraging to you because God does the same thing today. He doesn't just challenge us, if you will, and confront us and convict us of our sin. But He is still in the process and in the the ministry of restraining sin in our lives, of fighting with us against sin, of, of pushing it down so that it doesn't take over completely. You see, now some of you might go, well, I'm glad he does that because it's a big struggle. What would, it, what would it be like if, if God wasn't with me to help me in this struggle? And, and maybe I don't even realize that it, it's not as bad as it could be because of God. And I haven't even thought about that yet. Well, think about it now because that's what God's message is to his people. I am, that, that, that lady that represents wickedness is not being allowed to totally get out of the basket. And it's God who's putting that lead cover on the basket. It's not us. We don't have that power, but God does. Now, because I I thought, Lord, I I wanted to find another passage of Scripture that I think would maybe help all of you because it helped me to sort of see this maybe uh, even in a a, a light that it makes more sense to us and and, and it becomes more real to us. Keep your finger in Zechariah because we're going to come back there and go over to the New Testament to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to see how this is happening even in Peter's life with the Lord. Just a couple verses here I want to take you to. Luke chapter 22, verses 31, 32, and 33. This is a, a powerful little passage of Scripture here. And what this passage illustrates is really how Jesus, even in the New Testament, is reminding Peter that Peter... I'm not going to let sin and I'm not going to let Satan, your spiritual enemy, have have a a straight-on shot at you, if you will. Okay? Which, again, illustrates for us what Zechariah's message was to the people of God in Zechariah chapter 5. First of all, notice in Luke 22, 31, Jesus, instead of calling Peter, Peter here calls him Simon, and he calls it twice calls it to him twice to emphasize. In fact, he even says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Why is he starting out this message to Simon or to Peter with Simon, Simon? Because he is reminding him right off the bat, Simon, you are humanly weak and frail. You're not Peter yet. 
You're, you're not that rock that we're going to see in the book of Acts yet. You are still Simon, Simon. And you need to remember how weak and frail you are and how much you need me, how much you need to depend upon me and look to me. Then notice what he says to Peter. Satan has demanded to have all of you and to sift you like wheat. Now, first of all, isn't it amazing that Satan demands anything of God? That shows again just how crazy Satan is, how off track he is. But what this word demanded speaks of is basically a a persevering insistence. Satan is insistent. God, let me at him. And it's a very vivid picture when Jesus says that Satan wants to sift them like wheat. If you know what that means, when you sift wheat, it means you take the head off of the grain. So literally, Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, if Satan had his way, he'd like to just tear your heads off. He'd like to just tear you all into pieces. He'd like to totally destroy you. That's what he wants to do to you. Now think about that. Peter was a leader and going to be a leader. And it's a reminder to all of us, but especially any of us in leadership positions, Satan doesn't like us very well. If it was up to him, he'd want to tear our heads off and tear us into pieces and totally destroy us and cast us aside. That, he wants to use us, in a sense, for his own selfish, evil purpose and plan. That's what Satan wants to do. And Jesus makes no bones about it. He says, look, this is the reality. This is the fight that you are in. This is the fight with your spiritual enemy you are in. This is the fight with sin that you're in. And Jesus doesn't minimize it. But notice what Jesus goes on to tell Peter. But I have prayed for you, Simon. See, Jesus has a more powerful role in this fight than Peter even realized. That Jesus was saying to him, I'm already praying for you. I'm in this fight with you. You are not in this battle against Satan or the spiritual forces or your sinful nature all alone. I, Jesus, the all-powerful one, I'm in this fight with you. And I'm praying for you. And I'm interceding for you. And I'm going to be here with you through it all. What an encouragement. Again, just like the woman was being pushed down in the basket. That's exactly what Jesus, in a sense, is saying to Peter. Peter, I'm not letting Satan... And and notice something, too. Satan had to ask permission before he could do anything to Peter. And Satan and the evil spirits have to ask permission before they can touch any one of God's children. You keep that in mind the next time you feel that... Because here's why. If... The Lord does allow some kind of attack or something to come into our lives. God's desire and God's will is always that whatever failure happens will be a temporary only failure and that restoration will provide a greater usefulness than what we see before. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say. Notice, he says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith 
may not fail. And the word fail here means a failure from which Simon could have never gotten back up. In other words, a permanent failure. A total destruction of his faith and of his usefulness and of his life. And basically, Jesus is saying, I'm going to allow Satan to do this. But Satan doesn't realize in the long run, you're actually going to come out of this attack of Satan stronger and better and more well-equipped than you ever were before. So that's why I'm allowing it. Think about even what Joseph said to his brothers. You meant evil for, for against me. God meant it for good. The reason why God allowed his brothers to treat Joseph the way he did and to sell him into slavery and to be in prison all those days and all of that was that God knew that all of this that Joseph went through was going to set Joseph up to be the leader and the the vessel that God could work through in an unbelievable way. And God works the same way today. If God does allow something to come into our life and to sort of bear down on us, we may fail in a sense, just like Peter did. He did deny the Lord three times. But after that, Peter was restored. And after he was restored, he actually was able to be used by God in a greater way than he ever had before. Because he learned something from it. And notice what Jesus goes on to say. Not if you turn back, but when you have turned back, Simon, strengthen your brothers. How could Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew that Simon was going to learn a really good, hard lesson through his failure. And that was that the only strength he had in his life was the strength of God. That he had no strength on his own. And when he tried to live his life in his own strength, he did. He fell flat on his face. He failed. He denied Jesus. And so Peter learned, wow, I... I can't do that anymore. And and not only did God then strengthen Peter, if you will, in his strength, but Peter then was able to relay the lesson that he learned through his failure to his fellow disciples so that they could learn to rely and depend on the Lord rather than themselves too. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, be strong, what? In the Lord. Don't be strong in yourself. All of us have to learn that the only strength we have is the strength that God gives us. The strength that we have in Him, not in our own strength. And Peter had to learn that as well because then notice what Peter's reply is right now in verse 33. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. The overconfidence of pride prepared Peter for failure. That's why Peter failed, because of the overconfidence of his pride. God, I've got this. God, I've got the strength to be able to handle whatever circumstance I'm going to find myself in. And Peter fell flat on his face. But it wasn't permanent. And it wasn't to the total destruction of his life and of his ministry. In fact, Peter's ministry became greater and bigger than ever. Because he learned, the only strength I have is the strength of the Lord. And I will not rely on my own strength anymore. 
I will not be overconfident anymore. I will not be proud about what I can do. I will only rest in what the Lord can do through me. So this passage of Scripture is really a great New Testament illustration of what Zechariah was talking about back in chapter 5. This is, this is covering. This is restraining. Jesus is saying, I'm not, first of all, Satan can't touch you unless I permit him. You're one of my children. You are my possession. In fact, Ephesians 1.11 says we are God's own possession. He will let nothing come into our life. No circumstance, no trial, no uh, spiritual attack unless he allows it. It's got to come through his hands. And then he says, I'm praying for you. I'm in this fight with you. And you and I can be encouraged by that. We never have to face whatever spiritual enemy or whatever's coming at us. We never have to face it alone as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is right there interceding, praying, fighting with us, fighting beside us, restraining it. And then Jesus reminds us, as he did Peter, if you fall, if you fail, it's not going to be forever not going to be permanent. In fact, you're going to learn something very valuable through this failure, and it's going to actually make you stronger and better than you ever were before. I'm going to be able to use you in an even greater way because you're going to get rid of your pride, you're going to get rid of your overconfidence, and you're going to realize that the only strength you have is my strength. That's what it means when sin is covered. But then back to Zechariah. I love this. Sin is also carried away, beginning in chapter 5, verse 9. Then I looked again and saw two divine servants going forth with the wind in their wings. Literally, the breath of God fills their wings like those of a stork. And the word stork, the the choice of the word stork is interesting because it literally means a faithful one. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and the sky. And they're basically going to carry it away. Now think about this for a moment before we move on. What you have here is... Basically, the representation of of the two goats in the Old Testament. The one that was sacrificed, that the curse was placed on it and it was sacrificed on the altar, and then you have the scapegoat to where it was sent away. It's exactly what you have here. You have a beautiful picture of, of, of the curse that comes upon the offering of sin, and then you have the curse being covered, if you will, and restrained, and then carried away. Because that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. In fact, the New Testament tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For everyone is cursed who hangs on a tree. See, we don't have to take the curse because Jesus Christ became that curse for us. Galatians 3.13 is where that's found. Isn't that great? 
you and I don't have to ever worry about being cursed because the curse fell on Jesus. He vicariously took our place on that cross and he took it all upon himself so that we could enjoy eternal life with God. And then throughout our lives on earth, because we still have this sinful nature, we still have this flesh, He promises us that He will restrain and cover and fight for us in this struggle against sin. And that He will be very forceful and active in pushing wickedness down in our life and seeking to purge us and prune us so that we can be more fruitful, just like Peter. But then I love this. He also promises us to totally carry away our sin, to literally remove it and separate us from our sin. And that's exactly what you see happening here. When these two women, filled with the breath of God in their wings, takes this basket filled with wickedness and literally carries it away. I mean, think about this beautiful picture, if you will, in the context of some of these verses. How about the verse out of John's Gospel, chapter 1, where John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 3, 5, For the Son of God, Jesus, was revealed in order to take away our sins. For in Him is no sin. How about Psalm 103, verse 12? As far as the east is from the west... That's how far God has removed our sins from us. You see, in that, you have that picture of separation and distance. God wants to, throughout our lives, keep distancing us and separating us from our sins. And then I love Micah 7, 19, which tells us God will conquer our evil deeds and hurl our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does with our sin. He totally conquers it. So that that's why one day you and I will be able to stand before God in holiness, in wholeness, and be able to enjoy Him and His presence and His heaven forever. Because He's not only covered our sin and restrained it and delivered us from the power of sin, but one day He will completely separate us from sin. In fact, that's what happens in death when we lay this sinful human nature and flesh that puts such a drag on us aside and we get this glorified body in which only righteousness dwells. But then notice this. Where does the sinful basket go? In fact, that's what Zechariah asks. Verse 10. Where are they taking the basket? And the angel replied, well, to build a temple for her in the land of Babylonia. And when it is finished, she will be placed there in her own residence. Hmm. You see, what God is saying is that wickedness will be sent to the place where she belongs. God, in a sense, is giving the world over to its sin. Separating His people from sin. But basically giving the world what they want. They want this. So God says, fine. Here's your basket full 
of wickedness. Have at it. It's exactly the same principle that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, chapter 1, when it says three times, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave, basically all it's saying is, this is what they insisted on, this is the way they wanted to live, and God said, fine. There it is. Go. Let it run its course. Now, we know that when that happens, obviously, there's consequences. There's a price to pay for sin. But if that's what they insist on, there you go. There's where the basket ends up. In the world. Because Babylon always symbolized, and even in the book of Revelation, symbolizes that world system in hostility and opposition to God. Folks, I hope that this message tonight, even though it was a message about sin, is an encouragement to you. Because God is saying to His people, Yes, I will confront you. Yes, I will convict you. Yes, I will challenge you about the things in your life that should not be there. But I do it out of love because I don't want you to continue to be in an unhealthy place. I want you to have full energy for me and the things that I'm calling you to. And sin will sap us of our spiritual energy in our life like nothing else. And God is reminding His people, I can, I can cover you. I can... I can you know, help you with this. I, I can fight with you in this. And I'm praying for you. And I will help deliver you in this. And then finally, I want to separate you completely from it. I want to take it away out of your life so that you can be free. Free in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for the reassurances and the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for how you show us how you operate in human life, really from Old Testament all the way through to today. Because, Lord, people are people. The people of God are still the people of God. And even as the people of God, Lord, we struggle with things. Sometimes things get the better of us. And God, I hope tonight was an encouragement to all of us in our struggle that we never struggle alone. And then no matter how bad we may feel we are struggling with something, you've not allowed it to have its full effect in our life. You're actually pushing it down whether we realize it or not. You're restraining it in some way. And ultimately, Lord, even in a struggle, just like you allowed Peter to go through that struggle, that Lord, even if we fail, it's not a final thing. It's a learning process. It's a growing process. It's us making progress, realizing what we can do and can't do with you or without you. And God, we also just thank you for the reminder that you take away our sin. You cast it into the depths of the sea. You help us to overcome and conquer it. And God, we could not do it on our own. So, Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you enter into our lives in such an intimate way, even into the greatest struggles of our soul and spirit, God. And you're willing to work with us no matter what and be there for us no matter what. What a God you are. You love us that much. Lord, help us to just acknowledge that and praise you and celebrate you and worship you for the God that you are. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, don't forget Sunday, worship service and potluck. See you next week.